Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable podcast. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have Douglas Batchelor from the podcast, What Is This Magic? And uh, thanks for coming on. No worries. Yeah, it's actually What Magic Is This? Oh. Um, it's all good. It's all good. I mean, Damn it's dyslexia. <laughs> Fair enough, but yeah, it's one of those uh, one of those things. Like, how how does one even pronounce this or or say this? What magic is this? But it's yeah, it's what magic is this? It's all good. All right, and thanks for taking the time to come on today. Anytime, no man, this is, this is my absolute pleasure. You're you you picked a good topic for me to talk about. It's pretty much one of my favorite things in the world to talk about. So yeah, yes, yes. Um, like, and just to my listeners, uh, a little background on this episode. I was. Um, scouring the internet trying to find some way to come on my show to talk about necromancy and one of my former guests recommended you to come on and uh you know there was a seems to be some um necromancy seemed to be a a more of a sensitive topic than i expected among other people very much so um you know not everybody wants uh you know i guess the people are concerned about necromancers um digging mm-hmm. up their loved ones in the middle of the night and reanimating them. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but you have a little bit of a different take on it. Uh, would you like to explain a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So necromancy basically comes from um, two words uh, put together from, from Greek. So you have the word necros, which means dead body and uh, mantia, which means divination by means of. So, I know when a lot of people think of the idea of necromancy, we have this idea of video games uh, or uh, Dungeons and Dragons, where you're thinking of a wizard who mainly reanimates dead bodies, or he's able to conjure up a army of skeletons to do his bidding and and fight in war for him and uh, this kind of thing. But uh, truthfully, historically, as we look at necromancy, um, it was a means by which people would Uh, interact with the dead to help them in their lives. Now, that's not to say that sometimes they didn't dig up bodies in the past, but my definition of uh, necromancy uh, as it exists right now is basically it's a divination, invocation, or evocation of the spirits of dead uh, living or and no, sorry, spirits of the dead, uh, human and non-human persons. Uh, so it is a kind of magic that is basically uh, a petitioning or or using the spirits of of the dead to help you accomplish things in your life, uh, basically. So yeah, that's that's really what necromancy means to me. If you were to ask other people, they might have a very different way of, of talking about it or defining it. But uh, for me, it is a kind of magic where uh, it is based in and around uh, death and the dead. Um, are there actually people out there that do practice, you know, digging up bodies and stuff like that and trying to reanimate them? Uh, most likely, yeah. I mean, there's there was um, there was a kerfuffle not too long ago about somebody who was. Uh, uh, they remained anonymous, but they were going around. I forget if it was on Facebook or if it was on some other internet forum, uh, in which they were they were digging up body parts, right? And uh, they were putting them in um, 
like poses and like it just really insane stuff. Um, and they were saying like, yeah, I can, I, I think I can bring this thing back to life to my knowledge, <laughs> to my knowledge. Uh, I don't really think that you can reanimate a corpse. Uh, I'm not ruling it out, but it's just not where my magic lands. Uh, that does not mean that I do not have bones or I do not, uh, um, I use, uh, remains, of, of things that have passed through this life uh, for the kind of magic that I do. Uh, it's just that I go through legal means to get those. You, you can get bones. Uh, where I live in Canada, you can get bones. You can buy them of uh, not just animals, but of humans. A human skull will set you back about a thousand dollars. And uh, yeah, so as far as people going around uh, thinking that they're reanimating corpses, uh, sure, I'm sure they're trying. But uh, it's just not where I land because it, it 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 says that the product of death itself is the most important part, whereas it, for me it's more about the spirits of the mm -hmm. dead that is the more important part. So that's that's basically where I land. Um, do you have a human skull? <laughs> um, I did a I did a, an episode on necromancy, and as far as mm, I. I tr I don't really answer that question and it's not because I'm trying to duck it, but it's more of just the fact that um, uh, a lot of people, when they ask me this question, um, my podcast is mainly about trying to get people beginning in magic and this kind of thing. So I'm, it's not that I, I shy away from mm -hmm. uh, uh, this part of necromancy, but uh, I, I will say that I do have bones. I'll just put it that way. I do have bones. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's just the easier way of of of, of uh, politely ducking that question. But yes, I, I do have remains. Um, wow, yeah, interesting. Yeah, uh, uh, one two. I also didn't know that a human skull would go for a thousand dollars. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. got to be so many around. I mean, everybody eventually becomes one. Yep. Yeah. No. So in in Canada where I live, a lot of people they they donate their remains to uh, medical industry, and there's that as well. But uh, there are uh, ways of procuring bones. I, there's literally a store, maybe about a forty five minute walk from where I live. Uh, it's basically just called Skull Store, and uh, it's where you can you can buy bones of animals and uh, even uh, human beings. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it does have a pretty huge taboo around it, but um, yeah, no, there's there are legal ways of, of getting bones. I mean, we are somewhat material, so uh, right. yeah. <laughs> so so that's kind of cool in a way. Like, so I don't really need life insurance. I can just tell my wife if I die, just sell my skull. <laughs> right there, you go. <laughs> I think um, I forget. And this, I might be confusing it with a story, but um, oh, no, no, I think this really did happen. Uh, I believe one of the people who was a, uh, not a janitor, but he he would take care of a theater in England, and it might have been even the Globe Theater uh, where Shakespeare had his plays originally. Uh, but when he passed away, he had his skull um, cleaned and, um, and waxed and polished. And so when they would do productions of Hamlet, uh, his skull would always be the skull of Yorick uh, in whenever they would play the, uh, put on the play Hamlet. So mm. yeah, it's, there's people do these kind of things. They certainly do. Interesting. Um, so, so how did you get started in this type of magic? 
Um, that's an interesting question. I've always been incredibly fascinated by by death, and um, I'm, I'm actually really cheery. Like you would not know anything anything about the that side of who I am if you were to meet me on the street. I'm not. I don't dress in black all the time. I'm a very uh, pleasant person, but I've always been very fascinated with two things from a very young age: the idea of uh, of time and the idea of death. And so. You know, as as you go through life, uh, I would have skulls and uh, of uh, pictures of skulls or stickers of skulls. So they're always just it's it was a very huge interest for me. Um, as I got older and started getting into practical magic, uh, which is like everybody's got their definition of magic, but uh, the one that I'm going to go with today is that magic is a culture specific way of experimenting with consciousness and. Um, Psy effects, uh, basically being able to see the future, this kind of thing. Uh, there was, um, you know, you you hear about the term necromancy, and you didn't you you think that well, that's just something that people made up. But no, the necromancy has been historically it has been something that uh, people have done for a very long period of time. I mean, if we think back on it, uh, perhaps some of the very first um, spiritual practices that we have was towards the dead. You have a family member or a member of uh, whatever uh, Neolithic tribe that you are, and they pass away. That's a huge transition. That's somebody who was there once is no longer there. So most likely a lot of the time that we would take their remains and we would uh, uh, offer things to them to try and continue a, con a conversation uh, that would try to exist after this person had passed away. So when I started looking into uh, to necromancy, it's, you can find historical examples of from Egypt and their fascination with the death. I mean, that's Egypt is a great example of people that were obsessed with the idea of death and obsessed with the idea of transition. And so this uh, was very appealing to me because the idea of something coming to an end and uh, the idea of uh, maybe being able to have some kind of a process of communicating with them or even asking them things was interesting. So truthfully, it's tough to find books about necromancy. So it's kind of one of those things where you have to go through uh, historical examples of what they did in the past and try and bring them into your own. But uh, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where I'm just very fascinated with the idea of death and the idea of, of time and running out of time and, uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. So you kind of have to teach yourself in a lot of these respects. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any specific system of magic that you use, like such as like the Golden Dawn method or uh, other types of traditions, voodoo, Santeria, hoodoo? Uh, no, but I, I take elements from them. Uh, a lot of people would say that uh, specifically not not the, uh, the Golden Dawn. The Golden Dawn were very... Um, uh, they were iffy about the idea of of death as, as, I mean, anybody of any religion could join the Golden Dawn, but specifically they were like, we'd prefer if you're, if you're Christian. Um, and the idea of, of death in Christianity, even though it did come from a somewhat necromantic source, if we want to really look back at him. Uh, but things like Sansaria, more so something like a Palomeombe, which is uh, it's basically a, another form of, of necromancy. Uh, but no, I don't really have a, uh, a specific path of which uh, I go through to practice necromancy. It's just I, I find techniques in each and I kind of bring them into my own. Uh, there's 
older books, uh, like something, or uh, there's a collection of scrolls basically called the uh, the Greek Magical Papyri, which is uh, it's actually Egyptian more than anything, and they have uh, about one percent of the spells uh, in there, which is just, just scrolls upon scrolls of spells that were translated. Uh, there is necromancy in there, so I can take from those uh, older ways of how they would engage in necromancy through to how people in the Middle Ages. Uh, there's a spell called the Keeper of the Bones. Um, yeah, I just take, kind of take from from where I can, uh, acknowledging that there is a great deal of beauty in these traditions, but uh, that there's also some very fantastic techniques within them that I can bring into my own and kind of create my own little system of, of necromancy. So, yeah. Um, so, so what is your system like? Like, like uh, give me give me an example of how you do it. So uh, probably one of the best examples is, uh, is like, say I want to have something uh, accomplished in my life. Right. And so I, mm, I will uh, try and come up with a desire or something I want to have accomplished, or maybe even something as vague as say, I just need some more protection. I just need a little bit more luck. I know it sounds very video game like, but uh, these are, these are common concerns that, uh, that magicians have. Uh, so what I will do is I will then try and look at certain spells from either things like grimoires, which are books of magic, uh, which don't actually have a lot of necromancy in them, but uh, maybe even something like I mentioned earlier, the Greek magical papyri, or or uh, or just come up with something myself. And so I I have a almost like a, a target for enchantment with this desire. So usually what I will try to do is uh, there are certain areas in and around uh, the city. Cities are basically just giant uh, graveyards or charnel pits. The city is a giant ossuary, which makes necromancy a very uh, uh, fruitful form of magic if you live in a city. Mm -hmm. It's very city-based magic. So uh, I will go to some of these places where there is almost like a a trafficking or a sanctity of the dead, say like a graveyard. Now, not all of my necromancy takes place at a graveyard, but it is a place where I think that there's a certain energy to it. And I'm not a huge fan of the term energy, but if you go to a graveyard in a certain time, you can definitely feel something. Uh, before entering the graveyard, I will leave an offering of say a coin, or I will pour out some rum. Um, I will just to make sure that things are okay. I will go in and I will just kind of uh, feel things out and see what uh, exactly the, the feeling of the day is. Sometimes you can go there and you're not really getting anything. You just kind of open yourself up and they're not in a mood to talk. That's fine. If they're in a mood to talk, just basically sit there for a little bit, kind of take it in. Perhaps there's a, a tombstone or perhaps there's even just a name comes to you. You just let everything in. And then um, eventually you will maybe try and hone in on something and you just sort of say, I need, I need your help. I need your help with this. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be doing something. And then eventually I will go back to my, my house. Uh, when you leave a graveyard, uh, specifically, there's one kind of a rule that we, we have is uh, one is you don't look back. So when I leave the, uh, when I leave the cemetery, I will, I might leave another coin or I might leave another offering. Uh, maybe I will put a candle at uh, one of the, uh, one of the tombstones. Maybe I'll leave some flowers. But eventually I'll make my way home and uh, I just do a ritual basically asking. And this can either be through a conduit um, of uh, I do 
uh, quite a bit with a, uh, a his name is uh, Saint Cyprian or Cyprian of Antioch. He was a, a saint who is uh, no longer uh, kind of he was kind of kicked out of the saint club, uh, <laughs> but he is known as the uh, patron saint of necromancers and magicians. And so I will appeal to Saint Cyprian with the uh, the spirits that I have uh, kind of let in and kind of let in on what my ambition is uh, when I was in the graveyard or the specific part place of uh, of, of uh, spirits of the dead, and just through them I, I just work through a ritual. Again, there's there's going to be offerings. There's going to be some uh, uh, praying. There's going to be. Uh, uh, incense. There's good. It's you make it's you make a big deal out of it, right? <laughs> so you try to make it a full ritual, and then uh, and then I wrap it up, and then I just see if it comes uh, if it comes true, or for the thing that I asked for actually manifests, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So uh, what is your success rate? Um, with necromantic stuff, it's um, if I could put a percentage on it maybe in and around 60 to 70 percent um it all gets wrapped up i mean i, I just kind of gave you like a little short form but i mm -hmm. i have I, I have a specific process that i'm i'm talking through with people on my patreon about uh, kind of a way of, of accomplishing everything but it all gets wrapped up within things like uh, using sigils i'm not sure if you know what sigils are um, i do okay cool so it all kind of gets wrapped up in that but i'd say uh as far as, yeah, success rate, 60, 70%. Uh, I mean, with setting uh, targets for enchantment within your life, you're not asking for something that you can very easily do. Like, uh, say, if you're starting a podcast, you wouldn't, say, you wouldn't sigilize for something like, I need a new microphone. Because chances are you can just buy a new microphone. I mean, unless mm -hmm. you're com completely skinned. But I'm also not asking something as far away as, like, I want to take a trip to the moon. I know that's out of my capabilities. So trying to leave things in a percentile where it's just out of reach, but it's also somewhat accomplish, uh, accomplishable. Yeah, my success rate is 60, 70%. I pretty much, yeah. And af after the ritual, does mm -hmm. the magic stop there? Or are there certain things that you have to do afterwards to, um, I don't know, sort of... Uh, feed the request yeah so the the offering that i give during a ritual that will stay up for a period of time i kind of know when i need to uh, dispose of of the offering whether it be food or bread uh, there's always water or or liquor whether it be uh, rum or even wine that will just uh, that will just uh, evaporate truthfully uh, the water, if it's a longer ritual, specifically to somebody like St. Cyprian, uh, once it starts to get cloudy, then I will replace it with spring water. It's, it's spring water. I try to use spring water because, of course, uh, spring water comes from the ground, and where do we put the dead? In the ground. So uh, when that starts to get cloudy, I will replace that. But no, the, the magic never really stops. I mean, the... I keep the altar or the space in which St. Cyprian is or where I have my bones. Uh, I keep that clean. Um, dust is okay to accumulate on some altars, specifically to uh -huh. altars that are somewhat necromantic, because if you think about it, uh, dust is basically pieces of you, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so yeah, the, the magic never really stops. I mean, I've uh, for specific things uh, like a Cyprianic ritual, 
Um, I will just make sure that he has what he needs. I don't give him absolutely everything. I try to, at the beginning of the ritual, give him half of an offering. And then if something does come true, I will give them the other half. It's just a transactional thing. So, but as far as my daily going on, daily goings on, uh, I also do a lot of, uh, which is somewhat necromantic. I do a lot of work with ancestors or ancestral interaction and ancestral veneration. So yeah, it's just part of my, my whole thing, right? Um, it's all mm. blended in there. So I don't really have a, a, as mentioned earlier, I don't really have a true magical path. I just kind of make up a lot of what I do from hints of the past or things that I've come across in, in older books and older texts. Uh, but no, the magic it never stops. It's an ongoing process. I mean, mm -hmm. I wish one could just do a spell and then uh, slap their hands together or rub it on their jeans and walk away. But no, these sometimes things need to be fed. Sometimes things need to be... Uh, um, you need to continue with some kind of a process uh, with with what to make it accomplish uh, to make it be what you want to have accomplished. So right. yeah. So so, how about like, for instance, you know, um, you know, somebody does some necromancy because they they want some money, and and they go to the cemetery, they come home, they do the ritual, and then they spend the next two weeks just laying in front of the TV doing nothing. Are they going to get results or, or do they actually have to like, maybe like go out and enact on, you know, maybe some impulses because maybe the impulses that they receive through their consciousness is part of the actual magic working. Absolutely. I don't think that if, if, if things were that simple where you could just do something weird and that's what I tell when people ask me if I'm a magician, what does that mean? I don't try to go into a long winded conversation with them about what I actually think magic means. I just tell people I do weird stuff when weird stuff happens, but going beyond that, uh, if things were as easy as the fact that you can do a ritual using some sonorous language and lighting a couple of candles and incense and having things accomplished immediately, then everybody would be doing it. And I do believe everybody can do magic, but doing it properly, it is work. It, it is work. It is just work that you have to bring into your life as well, right? right. Um, so if it was as easy as maybe just saying a couple of things from a book and then you're done, uh, I wish it were so. I have not seen that. Perhaps there are people that exist that can do that. I don't really know, but uh, I, I, I tend to doubt it <laughs> just from my angle. Uh, magic is at, at base. It is, it's called the great work by a lot of people. I find that a little bit, um, a little bit glib, but I do recognize that it is, it is an amount of work and you do, do have to do it. Uh, you do have to do a lot of thinking about it and you do have to do a lot of, seeing what works and a lot sometimes again it's like 60 70 percent success rate for myself that's 40 to 30 percent where it just doesn't work or some I, so i have to think about maybe something i did wrong maybe there's something i have to change etc so no i don't think that just by <laughs> i don't know putting a coin at a graveyard and pouring out a measure of rum will accomplish you to be able to get i don't know 500 bucks but uh, if it works for you, it works, right? So I'm not going to throw shade at that. But uh, I, I think the more you put in, the more you get out. Truthfully, truthfully, right. that's just me. Right. I, like my, like I, from my, my understanding is too is like, like if you do the ritual, after you you, you get reaches to the ritual, I, I think there's a certain point of looking for the opportunities to pop up and being able to take advantage of those opportunities and put forth the energy in order to manifest a result. 
Absolutely. So your magic never ends, right? Like you are, you are experimenting with the definition of magic that I have. Uh, you are experimenting with the, oh, sorry, the siren going by. <laughs> I knew it would happen. Um, all right. Hopefully it's gone by. You, at base, the way that I said about magic is that it is exploring consciousness and side effects. So how does one know when those are actually happening? It's about paying attention a lot of the time. Um, people tend to think that magic because they see it in a movie or they uh, play a video game, that uh, it's, it's a process of precision. I have to say this thing properly and then do this thing properly and then do this thing properly and then it will happen. And in some instances it can. That's, that's part of what's called the Solomonic uh, method, which is a whole different kind of magic. Uh, but even then, I, I doubt that a lot of people get results. But I think that magic, more than anything, is about intuition over precision. It's about trying to open yourself up and just being able to feel that. Where are things coming up? What is trying to talk to me right now? What are my dreams saying? What are the weird kind of strange synchronicities or coincidences that are kind of leading me somewhere? So that takes that takes time. Uh, just doing a ritual that you read in a book uh, is not going to get you that. So I've been doing magic for about 17 years. It's just a little bit over 17 years. So being able to recognize when things pop up and you're being able to go towards them or mm. being able to say no also is very important. Uh, that takes time. And that's, that's something that no book is going to tell you about. But yeah, you have, to, you have to open yourself up to be able to recognize when magic is actually working. And that's tough. So it's tough for a lot of people. <laughs> Um, when, uh, working with, with, with um, mat, um, entities and necromancing, mm-hmm. um, like, I know there's sort of like two schools of, or like maybe three schools of thought actually, mm-hmm. um, about spirits, you know, some people look at spirits as a psychological model, right. Or they're manifestations of our own, you know, consciousness from our, you right. know, it's us basically. It's just a, it's a separate part of us. Um, you know, like for example, like anger could manifest as like a demon. Right. Um, and then there's another school where it, it's separate. We you know, like, like in the, like in the Goesha, you know, where, yeah. you know, you're, you're conjuring something from the outside and you're in a circle protecting yourself. Right. And then there's people who sort of mixed the two in like the as above, so below type of model, where it's a combination of both. Uh, Which one do you come closest to? Well, just because I I don't really think that it's uh, as easy to delineate between those, uh, those distinctions, unfortunately, because for one, what actually is psychology? I mean, I don't think that anybody who can give you a, true summary of what psychology is, uh, knows what they're talking about. Psychology changes so constantly. Uh, the whole other idea of, of Goetia, which truthfully, Goetia actually came from uh, came from necromancy. It came from a, a go, Goetia comes from Goes, which means uh, wailing or howling. And it was an ancient Greek process whereby people would lament the death of, of people. Um, so that's where that comes from. So necromancy actually comes from, uh, sorry, uh, Goetia or conjuration of uh, the demons or whatever you want. Uh, that comes from a necromantic process, um, mm-hmm. which is really cool. A com- combining of the two. Um, truthfully, yeah, I think I, I think I would probably fall closest there, but 
I tr- as I keep doing magic, I find that the need to try and explain what's going on or, or fall in line to a specific way of, of trying to pin down my magic, uh, it doesn't murky the waters or make it go away. It's just that I try to stick with the phenomena. If I see that something is happening, then uh, I don't try to be like, oh, this is part of my mind. My mind's only doing this or try to explain it that way. Or if it's like, hmm, I did this ritual and a picture of mine fell off the wall, even though I've got it stuck to my wall with Velcro and a nail, uh, that's definitely a, a spirit that I conjured earlier that knocked it off. I'm, I try not to explain these kind of things because the process is so interesting and probably whatever explanation I come up with uh, will fall very short of what's, what's actually happening. So I just stay with the phenomenon. But um, yeah, you, people can try and put these things into into certain schools. Uh, I'm just interested in the the weird stuff happening. That's where and, and just noticing and observing them. That's that's mainly it. So it, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm dodging the question mm-hmm. because psychological things, of course, there's going to be a psychological element. I mean, how else are we going to apprehend these things whether through whatever we call the mind, right? Um, so with things like, uh, you know, uh, I have when people think about necromancy, they think about the idea of, of conjuring spirits using the uh, lesser key of Solomon or Goetia or the key of Solomon, uh, th- that kind of stuff. Crowley said in his translation of the lesser key of Solomon that uh, all the demons are in your mind, um, which I think set things back a long, long time. But uh, I, I do think that spirits are somehow, they do have some kind of corporal reality. Um, in some way we've been we've had spirits in our uh, existence as a species for thousands and thousands and thousands of years it's only in the last 300 years that we've said no spirits can't exist um so i think that there's definitely some kind of a, a reality to them in some way it's just uh, i don't go out of my way to try and explain them mm-hmm. yeah i've always kind of felt that it was a little bit of both yeah you yeah. know, a part of us connects with something outside, just like with people connect with each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You it's know. it's an it's an ongoing interaction. All of it is an ongoing re- interaction. And uh, for me, and I I just find the interaction is not easier, but it's just it's it's more fruitful for me when I'm using. Uh, sorry, wrong word. When I am continuing my interaction with the spirits of of the restless dead, we'll just put it that way. Um, do you do like before, um, you know, doing some type of ritual or mm-hmm. whatever, uh, do you do a divination beforehand to make sure that, you know, it, it is a suitable thing to do? Um, I used to, I used to, again, I've been doing this for about 17 years. I can kind of feel if uh, something feels a little bit icky and if something feels a little bit off, uh, there's just something that rises up. And again, being able to notice that if I'm doing, yeah, if I'm doing something and it just doesn't feel right, then I won't go forward. Uh, but I use certain processes either through uh, the stars or where the moon is or through uh, timings that are put forth in things like a, a, a grimoire, like the Higromantia or, the magical, I'm sorry, the, uh, <laughs> the magical treaties of Solomon. Um, but if I'm even continuing that and the day of things feel a little bit icky, don't ignore that. Like it's, it's so I just kind of like, mm, 
no, now is not the best time. So I, I literally might have to wait another month before I try again. Uh, but as far as like casting a divination to be like, is my ritual going to be successful? Um, I backed off doing that. I backed off doing that maybe about eight years ago. Um, it just, I didn't feel that it had very much to say about the ritual itself. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, how about like the, the, um, you know, about the, the uh, 40% of the time when it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you think that, that during those times when something doesn't work, it's just, maybe it's just simply, it's just not in the cards to happen? Yeah, not in the cards to happen, or maybe I did something that I, I shouldn't have, or maybe they're just not in the mood to talk, or <laughs> who, who knows? Again, just sticking with the phenomenon to me as opposed to trying to explain it is far more fruitful. And so if I learn something, uh, I just move on. Or maybe if it's one of those things where it's like, I really want this to happen, I'll try to take a look a little bit uh, easier or a little bit closer to see maybe what texts that I'm working off uh, off of if there's something that I changed that maybe I probably shouldn't have, does it require more fidelity to the text? Uh, does it require me to even go further away or bring in something from some other texts? Right. But uh, as far as trying to explain why something uh, didn't go right. Yeah. could be the cards. Could be, uh, could be anything. Could be, maybe it just wasn't the time. Uh, I don't move. Uh, I don't stick around too long. I just kind of move on. And uh, if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, uh, then I might even try and kick it up a notch or try to do something uh, even more bold. So. Mm -hmm. um, what is uh, like, when, what type of phenomena have you experienced through the results of your magic? Like what is like an example of like, you know, like, have you had anything that was completely fantastic and unexplainable happen as a result? Yeah. So um, a lot of people, when they, uh, <laughs> when they think about necromancy, they think about something that's actually called negromancy, uh, which means black divination, which doesn't really make very much sense. But uh, when people in the middle ages thought about necromancy, they thought that uh, when somebody dies, their spirit goes away. Uh, and uh, anybody who said that they were doing necromancy of petitioning spirits of the dead was actually being tricked by uh, demons. Uh, so when you're using something like a grimoire, we've all seen the movies, you know, when somebody's got a book and the circle on the floor and that kind of stuff, that's, that's actually negromancy. Uh, I also do that. So I also do a lot of working from grimoires as well, because it, it, it all comes from the same thing. It comes from uh, Goetia, which is a necromantic process mm -hmm. uh, from ancient Greece, right? So I, yeah, I've had something where, I mean, the point of doing any kind of uh, Solomonic magic or negromancy, the point of it is to try and bind demons to, to you to be able to accomplish things in your life. Whether the demons are, I don't know, a part of your psychology, whether demons are part of uh, fallen angels or et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't really matter. But uh, the point is to try and bind them to help uh, to become your allies, basically, in your magical activities. Every once in a while, um, uh, something will really interesting will happen. It's um, so, yeah, I was doing a, uh, I was doing a uh, working from a grimoire called uh, the book of Oberon. You can buy it as the book of Oberon, but there's a section in there called the uh, Liber uh, Officiorum Spiritum. And so, yeah, I was, I was doing a, a, an invocation and the invocation of uh, one of the demons that are listed in here. 
and or spirits, one of the spirits that are listed in there. And uh, yeah, it's so it appeared um, if like a fucking phantom. <laughs> like, sorry if you're swearing. Sorry, um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it, something appeared very visibly to me, and it was there for a period of time. Um, and it was scary and very frightening. And I didn't respond to any of my, uh, any of the things I was trying to say to it, but, uh, it was there. There's, there's literally no way of being able to de- describe when something like that happens. So the first 15 seconds where it happens, you're just like, I don't know what to do now. There's no way that my mind can try to explain this away. It's something that happened. Uh, so yeah, I was trying to talk to it and then, uh, I, I started the process of, of, um, goetic invocation, evocation, this whole process. And one of the final processes is to try and, uh, you give it a license to depart and just right as about, I was about to give it a license to depart. It was gone. It was just the, the vision just kind of like it dissipated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was by far the most, uh, intense, uh, thing that's happened and it was it was literally the first time it happened since then it's happened uh, a little less frequently but uh, this was the one that really made me take notice but other things yeah there's poltergeist effects like and i, just, I don't want to make it sound like oh it happens all the time because uh, when you do magic it, it does and you do magic properly and for long enough uh, the kind of stuff does happen i uh, there was a period of time where i was working from that uh, book that i mentioned earlier the greek magical papyri and I have a, a picture on a wall, uh, and I kind of brought this, hinted at this earlier, uh, that's got in a, an Egyptian god on it. And when I was, for a period of about six months, when I was working on this uh, uh, certain amount of ceremonies and rituals within this book, uh, this painting would fall off the wall. It would just, and it was, it was hanging by a nail. I had Velcro keeping it up. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that can knock that down. Um, and yeah, for I think three times, yeah, it just would it would jump off the wall when I would go to bed, and it would just fall off the wall. And uh, eventually, I the second time it happened, I was just kind of talked to them, I was like, "Guys, come on, like enough." Uh, and then eventually, I just took a picture of it, and it hasn't happened since. So, um, but there's always going to be weird phenomena that happens to you, not just things like coincidences, but uh, spooky stuff, spooky stuff like you see in the movies. Yeah, it definitely happens for sure. So when you had the manifestation, like what mm-hmm. did it look like? Was it like a shadow person? Yeah. So I, it looked like a, the best way of explaining it is like a wraith. Like if you see a, uh, a wraith in, I don't know, kind of Nazgul. I, don't, I, I haven't seen the Harry Potter movies in forever, but I think there's something like the eaters of something. Anyways, it looked like a, a human form that had had a dark shroud dropped on top of it. And uh, didn't it was kind of cut off uh, below the waist if it had a waist, so yeah, it was it was ethereal. And then uh, in front of it, it had a what could be construed as being an arm, and on it on its arm was perched a. My mind wants to say it was a falcon, but it could very well have been a crow or a raven or a black. It just looked like a larger black bird, and um, which is interesting because the specific spirit that I was trying to conjure, um, it, its its appearance is supposed to be if, of that of a of a bird, I believe, of a crow. And so, it didn't come as a crow, but a, a bird was definitely there. And so, yeah, and it just it was it was there for a period of about. Uh, two and a half minutes, three minutes. Um, no. 
But it didn't say anything or respond no. to anything you said. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was more, um, yeah, I think I was more uh, just scared slash interested in the fact that this thing that everybody talks about, um, which isn't the point of doing the ritual itself. The point of the ritual is to bind. But people say like, well, I want to see a demon, right? And so mm -hmm. that was never the ambition going in, but it'd be cool if it happened. And then when it happened, it's like, this isn't as cool as I thought it was going to be. Uh, it took a couple of uh, weeks afterwards where it's like, that was incredible. Uh, it really was incredible. But to begin with, it was just like a very odd thing that happened. So, Did it make you think twice about what you're doing? Were you like, hmm. <laughs> Maybe. No, no, because I, this is a thing with these uh, these books, like Grimoire specifically, is that mm -hmm. they talk about these kind of things happening, um, and that this is this this is a phenomenon. When you use certain books, certain things happen, right? So, when it did happen, I was more like, okay, so the thing that might be a phenomena of doing this kind of magic happened, right? And there is a lineage of more than. Well, I could I could go very very far, but as far as like actual books written about this spirit may become visible, and you have to ask it not to harm yourself or your family, but it will be visible. Have been talked about for over seven eight hundred years, right? Like this, so there's there is a precedence for this. So when the thing you're doing has that effect and it does that thing, then yeah, it's not overly surprising. It's it's frightening, but it's just like, okay, so it did the thing you're supposed to do. This is insane. This is crazy, but it still did that thing, right? So, yeah. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. do, <clears throat> do, do you ever worry about any negative consequences? Uh, do I worry about... Um, Yes, I do. I, I do merely, I have, um, I've struggled with my mental health my entire life. I'm much better. I've, I've, uh, I've, uh, I've taken care of a lot of things, but there, there have been moments where I thought that I was going insane. Um, and I don't want to say this to discourage people, but, uh, if, if you've always kind of felt things your entire life, usually you can be a pretty good judge of when things tip into the unhealthy category. Uh, so when things start to get uh, to there, um, I'm able to pull myself back a little bit and just be like, I, I need to, I need to take a little bit of a break right now, or uh, this, I can't have this happen. As far as the spirits doing negative things in your life, yeah, it'll happen. Um, it's magic when it when it works properly, it's never A to B. It's always a strange weaving way of getting the things that you're asking for or what you want to have accomplished. Uh, it's never one of those things where you can, as, as mentioned earlier, like you do a ritual, you say you want money and then money appears. There's always a strange route via which one will get that money if indeed that's what they're asking for. Uh, but as far as like conjuring, um, conjuring demons or that kind of stuff, uh, I've got a very good uh, protocol for cleansing, uh, spiritual cleansing. I take a lot of precautions. Um, and yeah, I, I've never had a fear that, uh, that a demon's going to, uh, trying to harm me i think more than anything and this is what speaks to why i'm interested in magic is i think there's part of them that want to be acknowledged a part of the spirits or the spirit world that wants to be acknowledged and uh, when we say something like bad spirits or bad demons and stuff like that mm -hmm. uh, i think that's belittling them and belittling the phenomena i, I try to call them history on experience uh, so they're trying to get attention 
if your interpretation of a lot of those times is that it's negative, um, that's cool. But I, I personally, again, been doing this for a very long period of time. I haven't really seen anything where, you know, um, something overly bad has happened to me at this point. I'm, I'm 37 mm-hmm. and uh, I haven't had anything that has tipped over into the a knife flies up from the table and hits me in the shoulder or anything like that. But uh, there's been moments that have been very scary. And there's also been moments where it's like, am I losing my mind? Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious and very cognizant of when things get to that point. But no, I, I really do think that they're trying to say something. I think that they're, they're actually trying to be like, hey, this is real. Um, uh, more people need to be doing this. Uh, we're just trying to get your attention. And uh, I lean into that because I really do think that for such a long period of time, specifically with something like necromancy, uh, because we've made death so taboo, Gary, mm-hmm. um, I think that they're lonely. And I think that um, they want representation, specifically here in the uh, what we call the West. Uh, I think that they really want to be recognized and uh, elevated in some way and paid mind to. And so that's part of my mission is to just try and um, acknowledge them, help them out. <laughs> and, um, you know, and if they help me out in kind, that's that's a wonderful wonderful relationship and interaction but uh no i i don't think that they're bad i haven't had an experience to to my mind i have not had an experience that has been overly 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 negative but i have had moments that it's like i don't i don't think that's the best so yeah so i I think this opens up like like two doors like one one, i totally agree that we don't pay i mean here in the west when somebody gets close to death we don't want to look at it we stick them in a a yeah. home and basically let them die by themselves, put them in the ground. Terrible. And then spend the rest of our lives trying to avoid that loss. Yeah. Um, in other cultures, the, the you know, people will bring home some remains, some people will set up an altar, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll have an ancestral worship or you know, celebrate the person's birthday or death day. Yeah. Uh, They'll, they'll still treat the deceased as if they're part of the family. Yes, they are. <laughs> and um, so 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 yeah, I, I I can definitely see why why you know they they would kind of feel here, especially you know with us, sort of shunned by the living. There's a reason that I, uh, because my podcast is mainly, uh, it's geared towards people that are magic curious, but I mean, people who have been doing magic for a long period of time, they also like the show, but uh, a lot of the people that come to my program are just people that are curious or maybe want to start out doing magic. And uh, I make no bones, sorry, that's a really terrible pun, but uh, <laughs> I make no I make no bones about the fact that I think that if you want to experience the corporal reality of uh, uh, experiencing the corporeal reality of spirits in your life. Necromancy is a great one because uh, for one, a lot of it is very city-based. Again, um, the cities are just giant graveyards. They are time capsules of bodies upon bodies upon bodies. And uh, the other one is that, again, I think that because they've been relegated and because we have such a taboo on the idea of death, the idea of, of us being able to live forever still to this day, like one of those things that we have in our minds that we, takes a long time for us to un, un, uh, get rid of that idea that we're, we're not going to live or that we are going to live for, forever. Uh, so I think then people starting out, I say, try necromancy, try 
ancestors first, go for ancestors, just acknowledging them. That is the f- great first step for people that really want to get into spirit interaction, which right. I think is the point of magic. It's also, I believe, one of the oldest forms of magic too. Absolutely. Um, probably because because our ancestors actually have an interest in us. Correct. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. I have an ancestral altar. It's, it's right in my living room. Uh, I have no problem if people ask questions about it. Um, and if you go to any place, go to Mexico, a lot of the houses there will have ancestral altars, go to very many places in Asia, they'll have ancestral altars, right? Like, so it's something that we've, we've kind of uh, let go of. I mean, we, we have our own way of dealing with grief. Uh, but I think that for the most part, uh, spirits of the dead, they are unaccounted for. They're hungry f- to be recognized and they're restless due to the fact that they aren't being recognized. And so I think that it's not going to where there an opportunity arises, but it is a very beautiful form and a beautiful way of people to start out their magical journey uh, via either ancestral veneration or if you really want to do necromancy. It's a really good way of being able to be like, ah, this magic stuff is actually real. Like there's something to it at least. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I had another part of a question and I forgot what it was. It's all good, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think like, like the other side of it, you know, of, other than the ancestral part, you know, like, like when we go talk, when we're talking about the, 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 the demonic part of it. Right. Um, that is something I, I've really covered it pretty extensively on my podcast. You know, I've, right interviewed as Connolly who does demon ultry i've had mm-hmm. lana milo duquette on here nice um i've had um and just just i think it was yesterday or day before uh, i was talking to somebody who's a, um, a demonologist right um you know and everybody um and one of the things that that that, that comes up especially when i'm talking to like these demonologists there's like oh there's three things you should never do Right. You know, one is conjure a demon, you know, mm-hmm. two is, is, um, like divination or a Ouija board. And then three is like paranormal investigation. <laughs> okay. You know? And I'm like, oh, I, I, I've done all three. Yeah. And, and, and no negative energy, no, no entity has ever attached itself to me. Right. Am I doing something wrong? I kind of feel left out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, that's one of those things where I don't know exactly. Well, for one, you have to ask yourself, what texts were you using? Like, is there, mm-hmm. is there something wrong with the books you're using? A lot of people, when they, the whole idea of conjuring a devil will try to find something like the lesser key of Solomon. And the two translations that they'll most likely go towards is that of Aleister Crowley or that of Crowley's uh, mentor, which was Gregor yeah, yeah. Mathers. Yeah, that's right? the one I used. Okay. So uh, those are, those are not great. Uh, there's previous translations of uh of the Goetia, specifically if you want to, if you feel like you need more protection, there's something called the Goetia of Dr. Rudd, uh, which has a extra part tacked onto it called the Liber Malorum Spiritum. But uh, try to find the, the, 19, the 19th century for magic is uh, it's something I rail against in my podcast. Uh, the 19th century and the early 20th century, I think, set magic back about a hundred years. And this is a very controversial um, opinion that I have, but it's one that I've just found as I've 
been on my path. I have very little time for magical groups. I've got very little time for any of that sub Masonic hierarchy that exists within magic. I think it's all rubbish. Mm -hmm. um, but there are texts that exist that are before Mathers and they're before Crowley um, that are far more better that will take you through the process, certainly uh, much better than those two did. And I think that that might be a reason why sometimes it's not working. Um, but uh, yeah, the try to find, there's certain people that are talking about these, this kind of stuff, specifically people like Stephen Skinner, uh, who's very good. And this, that's kind of his jam is, is talking about this, this area of uh, Goetia or Solomonic magic. That's kind of what he's known for. Uh -huh. uh, but um, yeah, trying to find the right sources is difficult because everybody uses, you know, they will talk about Aleister Crowley or they will talk about uh, the Golden Dawn. And truthfully, I think that you can basically get rid of those guys. You don't even need to look at them. And this is controversial. Right. You don't now, even need to look at them. like the, uh, the three books of occult philosophy by Henry Cornelius? Agrippa? Agrippa, yeah, Agrippa is a weird one. Um, so the three books are it's one of those things where I tell everybody you have to read them. You absolutely have to read them. It's a tough read. It's a tough read, but I mean, it's, it is worth a read because you can see he didn't actually write the book. There's about, um, there was yeah, about, it's a, it's a compilation based. Correct. There was about 16 people that helped him get all the information and put it in that book. So it's kind of all off in all directions. Um, it's good. It's good to read. It is. I, I say that it is a, um, it's a gun of a book, but without a trigger. It's everything you need to fire a weapon except the actual means to fire it. Um, because it will talk about all these things and demons and angels. It's all well and good. But uh, it's a book that came after that, which he may or may not have written, called The Fourth Book of Occult Philosophy, in which it actually takes you through the process right. of spirit conjuration <laughs> in a segment which, again, may or may not have been written by Agrippa. I actually think it was written by Agrippa, but that's just me. It's called On Magical Ceremonies. And so that's one where you go through the process of how to consecrate things, how you do the invocation, the evocation, the, um, uh, the uh, binding or the constriction uh, of the demon to you, and then the license to depart. I think I'm missing out a part there. But uh, that's the actual book that I suggest for people if they really want to get into this kind of magic. Um, I still think everybody should read the three books of occult philosophy just to see where a lot of magic uh, I don't want to say, <laughs> I think where a lot of magic goes wrong, um, but uh, it's also an incredible document. But as far as if this kind of magic is interesting to you, uh, fourth book of occult philosophy and the very last, literally the very last paragraph or a couple of paragraphs in on magical ceremonies in the fourth book is on necromancy. Go figure. So, <laughs> and there's some good stuff in there as well. So um, how about the work of, um, like Edward Kelly. Kelly's a weird one. So, uh, well, Kelly, he didn't really write too much. It was mostly John D that did. John, yeah, John D and Edward Kelly. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So it was mostly John D that did, uh, the, the writing. We have his magical diaries. We have a bit of a process. Uh, that's, that's angel stuff or whether or not, um, it was, uh, D's interesting. I really like D. I, I was more fascinated in D a long time ago. It is a huge process. Uh, and somewhat expansive, and I just found that I could accomplish similar or nearly the same results with less work by going through different texts. The thing with D, um, I've read about, I've read about five biographies of him. I love the guy. He is maybe the ma most magical person that has ever existed. But 
I think that what we call what's called the Nokian magic or the, the angel summoning magic of, of John D. I think that if we were to show him how it is practiced or has been practiced since the Golden Dawn and since Aleister Crowley, I think that if we were to summon the spirit of John D into the circle or sorry, into the triangle, whatever you want to call it, to bring him forth, to mm-hmm. evoke him and say, hey, man, here's what we're doing with your work. This is Anakian magic. I think he would be somewhat upset. I don't think that he would recognize it. I think he'd be somewhat upset with it. And he'd be like, I don't know if you guys got it. His magic is of him almost entirely. It is so idiosyncratic and his uh, that for my money, I, I want to leave it to him. I think it exists to him and it is his process. So instead of trying to copy somebody else's magic, I think for people that are interested in magic, be inspired by the things that D got to get to where he was for his magic. Uh, whether he was just being led around by Edward Kelly, who was constantly telling D that he was being chastised by the angels for doing Goetia, which again, in turn is like necromantic magic mm-hmm. remains to be seen. There's some part of me that thinks that perhaps um, whatever angels he was summoning were actually just goetic demons in disguise. Oh, the intrigue. But um, uh, truthfully, I, I, what I come at uh, D's magic is I, I leave D's magic to himself as interesting mm-hmm. as it is. I, I have too much respect for John D mm-hmm. uh, that uh, I just, yeah, his magic belongs to him. Uh, I'm going to let it inspire me to create my own form of, of spirit interaction or angel interaction or demon interaction. But I, I'm very inspired by John D. just not his, what is called Enochian magic. Uh-huh. Yeah. And John D, didn't he, his original work or contact come about through working with the book of Abramelin? Abram of Worms? I think that, um, that I'm not entirely sure of. I know that he was very, very... Uh, inspired by things like uh, the Grimoire Pornorius or uh, Liber Geratus. I know that the Alls Almadel or Armadel uh, or Art Almadel were very, very big in his world. Uh, he was, again, he was maybe one of the most magical, if not the most magical man who's ever existed. When we think of Wizard, we think of John D. He brought so much into his studies. He was so enamored with learning knowledge and absolutely everything. He wanted to learn about Kabbalah. He wanted to learn about astrology. He knew about cartography. He was a sponge for magic. And that allowed him to be able to create whatever system that he created with, with um, which elements are still lost. There's still elements of it where we're like, we don't know exactly how he did this, but the golden dawn and crowley and others will be like no this is what we what he did speaking on his behalf right um he was he was influenced by everything he mm-hmm. had probably the largest private library in europe at that point um and it's a shame that so much of it was pilfered uh while he was on travels but uh i love d i love him so much that i want to leave his magic to him <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there's any relation to him and the works of Shakespeare? Um, Well, I think that definitely there's something to be said about the fact that Shakespeare was most likely inspired to write the character of Prospero because of John Dee and maybe even some other characters that are around at the time, like uh, uh, Humphrey Gilbert and John Davies, who even before John D. I'm not sure if you're familiar with these two. Uh, even before John D, they were contemporaries, but I mm-hmm. believe they they wrote what was called the excellent book on the art of magic, 
which was just released recently by Scarlet Imprint. Very good book. Uh, they were doing their own uh, strange dalliances with with demon and spirit conjuration, and uh, they even uh, they even conjured up, um, I guess, King Solomon and even Agrippa um, in a in a, another treatise they wrote called Visions, uh, which was an account of their their conjurations and the thing that they did. But I think that there was just so many of these guys in and around the time, like. It, Elizabethan England was a magical place. It was a place where the spirits were very much around. Um, there was something in the air that made England a magical place and almost made England want to stretch out and in a way, terribly want to take over the world. I think all of that, those ideas come from a 75 to 100 year period of time, but uh, definitely D was, he was known. He was a known person. Um, it's just such a, it's a tragic tale. I don't, a lot of people that uh, love John D, they actually don't do the the research and looking up about John D and his life because he had a, he had a rough life. He didn't have a good life. Um, right. And uh, yeah, the only thing that remains that we know of his magic is just what happened. But people tend to forget that John D was also, uh, he did scrying, uh, after Edward Kelly, uh, with mm-hmm. uh, I think his name was Bartholomew Hickman, could be wrong. No, I believe it's Bartholomew Hickman. But uh, yeah, he he did um, he did scrying after uh, Edward Kelly, and uh, we we don't have any of that. So we just have what we have, right? So who knows if he got better at doing what he was doing? But uh, no, definitely, I think Prospero was very much could be uh, an, a uh, an inspiration uh, of of John of John D. How could he not? I mean, true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've even heard rumors that they were the same person. That D and Shakespeare were the same person? Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. There's, <laughs> I I bounce back and forth. Uh, I don't even know if Shakespeare was one person. Could have been a couple right? of people. There's a lot of people that think he was more than like a group of people. Yeah, I think that that's all possible. Uh, but there's also part, part of me that thinks that it was one guy. Um uh in a way i'm almost to be you know cheeky i guess uh i think that shakespeare like there's a spirit of shakespeare a spirit of shakespeare wrote everything and he he possessed people to write these these wonderful works because uh, i'm a huge fan of shakespeare i actually used to be an actor so uh <laughs> I, re- I retired at the age of 16 so i have a great love of, of william shakespeare so uh does the person shakespeare did the person shakespeare write those plays who knows but their spirit of Shakespeare definitely wrote. Put it that way. That's a great answer. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's amazing. I, I you know when you ask that one too is a, a lot of people don't realize. You know they read Shakespeare in in school and they're like, okay, mm-hmm. this is an acceptable thing, and then they'll look at something like the Goetia and go, oh, this is unacceptable. This is the devil's work, and. Right. And they forget that like all this stuff back then was really intertwined. Very much so. Yeah, they we try to think of a good example of a book to bring up, but it's uh, uh, there's there's definitely books you can look up about just how crazy and interesting uh, that period of time was for England and not just England, all of Europe. It was a fantastic, strange, terrifying period of time. Very a lot of turmoil. Again, uh, Black Death kind of went away, but always kept popping back up again like there was there was a lot going on the the spirits seemed very uh close to absolutely everything and everybody and uh, they acknowledged it i i, I give, take my hand off to them i, I mm-hmm. 
doff my cap to them because they actually recognized that something was going on. And I don't think it was just a product of the time. They were, they were all idiots back then. They didn't really, there's just a way of explaining things like illness that doesn't hold any water for me. Um, I think that there definitely was something going around in and around that time. Um, And they capitalized on it. And yeah, not just texts that you can find uh, in and around the 14th, 15th, 16th century uh, in England, but all over Europe, all over the world, basically. Uh, (laughs) That's almost comparable to to the time that we're going through now, I think. Because because even now, like when when I first, you know, I'm 53, I think, (laughs) I'm not sure. But, you know, I, I, my interest in it started really young. I was probably like 12 right. years old. I started reading tarot cards and stuff like cool. that. And, um, but, you know, magic, spiritualism, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's much more talked about now than it ever has been. One of the gentlemen uh, who created chaos magic uh, his name is peter carroll mm-hmm. i forget which book it is but uh he always says that um in times of great turmoil uh wizards and magicians come to the foray and so we're seeing something now where yeah there's we're there's a definite transition or a lot of changes happening really quickly these days and when that happens yeah you will see more uh, more more magicians, more people like me <laughs> popping up <laughs> because the story isn't working. The story that we've uh, surrounded ourselves with that, hey, guess what? You're born, you work, uh, you retire, and then you die, and that's it. There's nothing beyond that. Uh, doesn't matter if there's tons of things that say otherwise or there's different experiences. Those are mm-hmm. all garbage or they just never happened. Uh, that's starting to fall away. Um, I think a lot of people are really starting to recognize that there's something else. And uh, from hopefully just like yourself, Gary, uh, from a very early age, that story never stuck with me. So yeah, when we see, when we see things in a transition, we will definitely notice that uh, there's going to be more of, of us. When Rome was going through all of its craziness, uh, there were more soothsayers out in the street. That's just how it goes. Yeah. I, and I think too, um, I don't know. Maybe just desperate times require desperate measures. <laughs> you know, it's like 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 okay, we're desperate. We're gonna just we're gonna try everything now. You yeah, know? there's a, there's a part of that. I also think that there is a. Um, I talk about it a bit in my. Uh, I did an episode on Charles Fort, and he has this idea of uh, something called dominance, or of the idea of how a culture or society uh, or the world at large gets its ways of understanding the world. The term has been used paradigms by Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Anyways, uh, the reason I bring this up is that uh, dominance for Charles Fort, uh, they come to an end because they're no longer useful. So the dominant that we have right now is one of explanation. It's one of scientific and empirical uh, being able to define absolutely everything and that that is the only way that we get our truth. But for Charles Fort, uh, that comes to an end because it's no longer useful. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're on the cusp of realizing that science has done such a poor job of trying to explain not only things like consciousness, 
but other such phenomena that we can clearly see are happening from something as weird as me being able to see visibly a demon in front of me to things like near-death experiences to poltergeists. The only thing that science has got is that uh, it puts its fingers in its ears and goes la 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 and says it never happened when we very clearly know that these things happen. Uh, that's not going to cut it for us. So I think that we're at a transition point where we start to recognize that a fuller, more well-rounded way of apprehending the experience of being human is coming to the foray right now. And mm-hmm. so we are, we are the um, we are the harbingers, you and I, the people that are interested in this stuff. We are the harbingers of this new dominant, a way of being able to apprehend the world, not based on explaining absolutely everything, because that doesn't cut it, but being able to say that there are experiences that we do not know what they are, but they are nevertheless important to us as human beings. And for not just us, the survival of this planet. Right. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to get into this by asking a guy about necromancy, but. (laughs) So I want to get ready to wrap this up, but I have one question and it's a doozy. Okay. Go for it. I love it. (laughs) Uh, um, uh, Why do you think, or or, or, what, what is the reason why religions, particularly Christianity. Yeah. Um, do not want people practicing magic for themselves. It's okay for them to do it, right. the clergy. Right. But it seems like they say, oh, it's not okay for an ordinary person to do it because then all of a sudden it becomes um, the work of the devil. Right. What is that about? Is, is that just because they want to maintain that power in their own secrets? No, I think that that's just one of the things that's stuck. Um, when you look at the history of Christianity, uh, and I'm going to hone in on, on Christianity specifically, but I know that other traditions, Judaism, uh, looks down on, on certain uh, acts of magic. Uh, I know that, yeah, there, I know that most uh, monotheistic religions, they try to uh, negate doing any kind of magic. Um, if you look at the history of Christianity, I'm going to stick it within a Christianity context. It came from a fairly uh, necromantic place. Um, you had somebody like Polycarp and the martyrdom of Polycarp. What happened after he was burned? He, The people that saw and witnessed the burning after the Roman soldiers left, uh, they went through the remains and picked out his bones and picked out his fingers. And they would bring those home and they would venerate these they. They describe these things as being more precious than gold, more precious mm-hmm. than gems and golds. So uh, Christianity comes from a fairly necromantic place. The Absolutely. Romans, the, the Romans and the Jews were horrified about how early Christians venerated the dead and the recently dead as well. They would hang out in tombs. They would hang out in, uh, in, in crypts. Uh, so it was, it, it started out on a, in two feet, fairly fir- firmly planted in pure necromancy. Uh, as it went through, uh, I think just through time, people, uh, those that were um, in control as far as this Christianity, uh, the Vatican, or even through things like, because uh, the Vatican, I mean, Catholicism doesn't really have a problem with them. Um, not an overt problem with uh, ancestral veneration and therefore veneration of uh, magical objects like body parts. That's not a, not a horrible thing. 
uh, it wasn't until uh, uh, Protestantism and uh, the Reformation that you started to see that they did not like the idea of inspirited matter. They didn't like this idea, which was the basis of, of Catholicism. This idea to them was, was horrible. So they got rid of all of that. They, they got rid of the, um, the, uh, the Eucharist. They got, I mean, so I just think that as far as Christianity, uh, as far as Christianity concerned, there, there are techniques. I mean, Catholicism, a lot of what they go through, I think is basically magic. It's the more Protestant side of Christianity that just basically said, there's no such thing as in, uh, in spirited matter. There is a God, he invented the universe, and then he, uh, he watches over everything. God is the only arbiter, but uh, that's just it. Uh, nothing else is able to be uh, holy. And that got wrapped in with a whole bunch of other things like uh, Cartesian dualism, uh, which basically said that mind and matter are separated. But uh, just, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here. It got wrapped up in uh, enlightenment thinking. And uh, it was strange because uh, the idea that there's only one God and that that Protestant idea that there's no such thing as inspirited matter came from a theological basis, right? It right. started off as theology, but just that we all forgot about it. So the, the, the church itself, uh, looking down on magic, uh, I think that that's a more of a specific uh, branch of Christianity and certain specific branches of certain major monotheistic religions. But a lot of what they do is magical. Yeah. Um, I think prayer is magical. Um, the, the idea of demon summoning, I mean, people aren't really... I, 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 it's been a long time since besides somebody who goes on TV, like a, an evangelist that will say something like that, or even the satanic panic of the uh, the 80s and the 90s, that on mass, people that are involved in the church, they're not ragging on these ceremonies or, or magic itself. I think that has somewhat slipped away because perhaps they start to realize exactly where their basis comes from. Maybe in Canada. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I live in, in Alabama. Okay. And uh, I mean, they consider yoga satanic. Hmm. Yeah, that's... Um, we have we have our uh, religious fundamentalists up in Canada as well. Um, I just think that perhaps more than anything, uh, with spe specific branches of monotheistic religions, they view difference as being mm -hmm. uh, as being evil, and uh, that is concerning. Truthfully, um, and I don't know how certain groups can call themselves Christian when uh, it's about division and pointing at things and saying that look up here in this Bible, we, we know that this is wrong because this said this. Meanwhile, earlier in the book, uh, it directly contradicts that. I mean, in the act of the apostles to get it back to, uh, get it back to Christianity, there, there's, there's four things that uh, Jesus told his apostles to do. Uh, the first was to go forth. Second was to uh, help the poor. Third was to uh, cleanse the lepers or help the lepers. And the fourth was to raise the dead. That's the fourth thing. <laughs> was necromantic. Um, <laughs> so um, the I don't think that it's like the the churches want to keep um, or the religions want to keep the magic to themselves. I just think that they they don't realize exactly where they come from, uh, which is very strange. It's just it's an it's a neglecting of the part of us which we know is magical. Um, so. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I just, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that there's a major reason why they're doing this. So it's um, just sort of ignorance. 
I think ignorance, truthfully. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much the, the root of all problems is, is, is human <laughs> ignorance, truthfully. That's yeah. what the Buddha said, too. <laughs> no, no doubt. <laughs> awesome. Um, where can my listeners find, find you and your podcast? Yeah, for sure. So uh, you can find my podcast at whatmagicisthis.com. Yeah, that's um, W-H-A-T-M-A-G-I-C-I-S-T-H-I-S.com. Um, I don't know if I had to spell it out for people, uh, but that's just my website. If you there'll, go be, there'll to, be a link to it in the notes of the episode. Wonderful. Um, but as far as uh, any place that has podcasts, I'm on uh, Spotify, I'm on iTunes, Stitcher. If they've got podcasts, I'm going to be listed there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Douglas WMIT and same thing on Instagram at Douglas WMIT. Yeah. If you head to what magic is this.com, uh, you can find pretty much everything that I do there and links to everything. Uh, and yeah, if you feel like supporting the show through Patreon, uh, yeah, it's on the website. So yeah, that's basically the best place to find what, what I do and where I'm, where I'm, where I'm at these days. And yeah, I'm releasing, I release podcasts about once every 10 days or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, and that's do it. you have any plans on like writing a book or publishing? Anything? <laughs> I'm getting the, uh, the book question quite a bit these days. You um, have to. Well, here's the thing. It's tough for me. I'm a, I'm a very, uh, what could be described as being ADHD. I try not to apply labels to myself, but the idea of sitting down in front of a computer for eight hours a day, uh, typing things does not seem overly uh, interesting to me right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to be a filmmaker and I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of music videos in my past. And uh, I, I, I think I would be more excited. I never say never, but I think I would be more excited to do a documentary about the history of magic than I would about writing That'd a book. Cool. Yeah, I don't. I literally don't think a good a uh, good documentary on magic has been made. Uh, if the I don't one think exists, I've ever seen one. Yeah, they're all really awful. They're all incredibly terrible, and I despise almost every single one of them. Uh, and so I think that maybe that's one of those things where uh, it's not the most cinematic of things to talk about. But I think that there could be a documentary about magic made. But again, never say never. I could write a book at some point. I, this juncture of my life i don't really have very much that i think that i could write a book about um but that might change that might change but the idea of writing a book itself sitting down writing that that to me is i enjoy the podcast because i have a process whereby i just go through my books um i take them off the shelf i sit down i write little notes and then that what i what i get from that book will bring me to another book and then i just put things down in notebooks and cards and it's this really ridiculously chaotic process mm -hmm. and then you just get to watch it all come together and then i record it which is great and then i have the process of editing it i love that process which because i think that goes a bit further back to when i was a filmmaker uh, that process is far more interesting to me than uh, clicky click 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 on a on a keyboard <laughs> That's, oh yeah uh, <laughs> yeah writing is tedious i i wrote no, yeah. i wrote a small book and it was just the writing the book wasn't so bad, but the editing was just murder. Yeah, it would kill me. It would absolutely kill I me. I spent more time editing than writing. Ugh. Yeah, I don't, it doesn't seem appealing to me. And truth be told, I never at any point in my life was like, I want to be a writer. Like <laughs> going, going through, I read a ton. I, if you listen to my podcast, I list a ton of books. I probably read to an unhealthy amount. And this isn't a humble brag. Like I should probably, somebody should probably stop me from reading. Um, but at no point ever in my life was I like, man, I want to be the person that 
writes these words. Like it just, it, it wasn't something for me that I found uh, attractive. Um, I never wanted to be, you know, that uh, maybe there was a, a, a two week period of time where I was like, man, it'd be cool to be Hunter S. Thompson. And then you learn about more of his life and you're like, actually it would be really uncool to be Hunter S. Thompson. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, I think uh, it, the lifestyle doesn't suit me. And yeah, I never at any point was like, I want to be, I want to be that guy sitting in front of a screen writing things. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that just doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say like, there is sort of a, um, what I like about podcasting is that I can create way more content a lot quicker. Correct. Than I can with writing a book. And I can also reach a larger audience. Correct. You know, yeah. Cause, cause a lot of people don't like to read <laughs> and, uh, and also with the podcast too, it's like an on-demand library. People go in there, pick what they want to listen to. Yeah. And that's it. The thing I love about uh, podcasts like yours and mine is that, I mean, it's somewhat topic-based, right? So there's not a continuation that goes through absolutely everything. So my podcast, you can just, if there's something that's interesting, you click on it, you listen to it, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then it ends when the episode ends. There's something beautiful about that. So yeah, it's far more conducive to me as far as, uh, as far as getting people to learn, I think people learn better um, listening as well. I mean, watching things is also kind of cool uh, because you have both the sound and the visual. But I think uh, there's something to be said about um, audio. I think we've, I think we're at a sweet spot right now, specifically for magic and occult podcasts. Uh-huh. Uh, I think we're, yeah, we're in a pretty sweet spot. There's a lot of them. There's a whole whack of them, uh, but they're usually of pretty good quality. They're usually. Like there's, there's very few ones where I'm like, nope, um, <laughs> they exist and they exist, but, uh, and I'm not going to point out which ones they are, but you're just like, there's ones that just like, this, this is really good. There is a good amount of information out there and this is wonderful. So we're in a sweet spot, Gary, you and I, we're, we're good. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I've been amazed at like how well my, uh, my, my episodes on the occult have been. There's definitely yeah. some of my they're, they are my top episodes. Yeah, it's people are. Again, I think I think something's something's starting to 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 breach right now. We can't we can't fully see what it is yet, but I think that we're at a time where uh, something is going to come through. The way that we learn and the way that we validate truth is changing, and that is why there's more of us mm-hmm. around. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for taking the time to be on today. This was great. It's my absolute pleasure, Gary. It's, it's been fantastic. Thanks for letting me uh, jabber on about necromancy and everything in between. Anytime you have a topic that you want to talk about, you're welcome. Just shoot me an email. I will, certainly. And I'll send you a link. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I have a pretty simple process. Love it. I love it to death. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you and have a great day. You as well, Gary. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. 
you can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.